Hi, this is Saqib Rahman from the OrthoClips podcast series, and today I'm with Dr. Ronald A. Navarro, MD, who is the Regional Coordinating Chief of Orthopedic Surgery at Southern California Permanente Medical Group and is the current president of the California Orthopedic Association. And today we're going to talk about COVID-19, ortho's role. Thank you, Dr. Navarro, for coming back on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Great. So um, what is ortho's role here? Uh, there's so many points of discussion. I really want to focus it to what orthopedic surgeons, uh, especially in healthcare systems, can be doing. But I also do want to talk about orthopedic surgeons in private practice. Um, but in general, what is the role of orthopedic surgeons right now? Uh, should we be... Um, you know, limiting our practices as much as possible? Should we be continuing with certain types of elective surgery? Uh, what's best for our patients and our communities and for our own businesses? Oh, a great question. Great way to start. <clears throat> it's really tough. You know, I think uh, we are into it a, a number of days now on the 25th of uh, March. And so I think all the basics just need to be said for the sake of the podcast. <clears throat> Wash your hands, uh, practice social distancing, uh, preserve uh, uh, personal protective equipment or PPE where you can so that your teams and other teams that are um, working side by side with you in your hospital systems, in your clinics, et cetera, who might be at the forefront of treating COVID patients are able to be protected. And then the elective surgery part, it certainly has come out by the um, CDC, the Surgeon General, the American College of Surgeons, and even the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Uh, Dr. Uh, Weber has put out a, uh, a, um, a open letter to su suggest following the uh, American College of Surgeons guidelines. Um, in our uh, own experience in Southern California uh, for 4.7 million patients in uh, the, the uh, Kaiser Permanente of Southern California, we certainly drew up what we thought were emergent cases that always needed to go, um, cases that were on the urgent side, and then there were clearly elective cases. Since those days, I've been asked, uh, well, is an acute uh, rotator cuff tear, um, is that urgent or elective in a young person. Um, maybe many people would argue that that is a uh, urgent case, so it might slide over into the urgent zone. I think right now when we are in this period where we aren't at a surge level, where um, we're seeing the most patients yet with COVID and, and a super need for uh, ventilators and PPEs are, are uh, um, very scarce, we can still argue and justify those cases. And I think if the conditions change, it will be a very different conversation. So um, now how many, we are, it's March 25th, how many weeks into, would you, into it would you say you are with the changes and practice that had to be undertaken at your uh, facilities? When did you switch gears? Yeah. In and, in and around uh, March the 12th, the 13th, we determined that we would uh, stop doing elective cases into the following week. And so um, 
that, that March the 12th, the 13th was uh, Thursday night to Friday morning. And then uh, many of the medical centers of the 13 medical centers that we, we um, uh, work with in Southern California stopped elective surgeries as of the 16th and some on the 17th. So virtually everybody was stopped with electives by the 18th and now we're a week later on the 25th. So decision was made two and a half weeks ago and um, uh, um, over uh, two, two and a couple of days ago and then we stopped in earnest uh, a week to a week and a half ago, depending upon the medical center. So, can you give me a couple of examples of um, maybe borderline? Um, I mean, I think, so to me, I think something like an elective total hip for longstanding arthritis sounds pretty elective to me. Um, give me a borderline case, something that there was a lot of debate about. I mean, you gave one example, an acute rotator cuff tear. Anything else that's really caused some friction in terms of what's really considered elective or not? Or have you flipped and changed where initially you were saying shouldn't do this and you're realizing that, you know, you're going to have to? Of the 200 orthopedic surgeons, I know a lot of them that, that uh, are in our system and many are good friends. And so let me just give you two cases. One person said, what about a distal biceps, Ron? That's something that probably should go. If you leave that for a longer period of time, you're going to um, have difficulty uh, with the repair and it might need a reconstruction with a, a, a bridging graft. And so uh, once again, it, we allow there to be that flexibility at the local level and so that those cases have gone a patellar tendon uh, um, rupture or a distal patellar uh, a distal um, um, patella fracture uh, we've seen one of those go let me give you another example that many people might think is completely elective and yet others who know this sort of our orthopedic business would argue there's no way how about an osteochondral allograft that's a fresh graft in a patient who's waited several months for the graft just got a match three weeks ago and they said it would be ready this week. Well, at that point, we weren't in the throes of uh, closure and to tell that patient, we're not going to use the graft and you won't get your um, uh, knee reconstructed essentially with a fresh allograft, it, it's very hard. So we've allowed a couple of those cases to go, although probably there's people on the far one side of this whole argument who would say that's a completely elective procedure. That's a good case, and it's similar to a conversation I had with one of my uh, renal uh, transplant colleagues today. I mean, most of what they do is really not that elective, but, you know, living donors, not happening right now. Um, and uh, even what they do at some point is going to be, you know, as I guess hospitals start to get filled with uh, COVID-19 patients, they're going to have to start rethinking, uh, you know, renal transplant patients. I mean, it's a little bit similar to what you're talking about in terms of needing a donor and finding a match. And so um, what have, where have you found friction? I mean, now um, you are with Kaiser Permanente as the president of the California Orthopedics Association. What has been your conversation with your private practice physicians? You know, uh, um, once again, many of them are friends, and I understand that they are really essentially small business owners. And so the, if they shut down a surge center, um, they are affecting the lives of just not themselves and their own personal income if they're in a purely fee-for-service environment and they are a small business owner. 
they're affecting the lives of all of the employees that work for them. They're probably not unionized employees who are going to be guaranteed benefits if they close their doors. And probably many of these employees that work for them will not get a paycheck either. And, you know, this probably can vary depending upon the state and, and state employment laws. But generally, it could really put a lot of people into uh, financially uh, um, um, into financial situations which are not the ones they want to be in. So. Uh, I understand that, and um, yet if there tends to be increase in these patients and the uh, PPE is becoming short uh, on short supply, there probably is some point at which people have to really re-examine uh, um, what kinds of cases they're doing. I think the cases that we would agree are urgent uh, or clearly emergent and can be done in in uh, the settings, any setting, and especially in a, a um, in a ambulatory surgery center setting. Um, maybe there is still some argument. I just saw an article on a famous orthopedic surgeon who does the um, elbow surgeries of pitchers, and he's still continuing to do elbow surgeries on on professional pitchers. And I think he was he came under scrutiny. Uh, in the in the lay press just this week, I won't mention his name. It's not for me to say. You can read about it yourself. But I think we are all facing these questions about what really truly is urgent. And in his case, I'll paraphrase some of his words. He said that if you're a professional pitcher and you don't get this done in this and this whole uh, pandemic lasts with shutdowns in three and four months, the, uh, the professional may lose one more year of of um, his professional livelihood, which could have a considerable loss of his uh, personal income and uh, put him in a, in a way that is financially detrimental to him. So are emergencies only just severe pain or a cancer or uh, a neurologic blockade and that sort of thing that we could uh, um, maybe justify or are they uh, financial in nature too? So especially in the uh, California orthopedic head, I have to um, understand these uh, situations for what they are and understand that everything is fluid and we have to make decisions based on the environment that we're in, just like you and I do in the operating room. Um, what about uh, doctor, you know, orthopedic surgeons who have primarily elective practices, uh, but are in your physician group, um, are they being asked or being expected at some point to volunteer, help out with um, taking care of medical patients that they're not used to taking care of? I don't know if your health system is at that point yet, but has that discussion happened? So, you know, somewhat like repurposing of physicians who may be otherwise getting paid um, to do something that they're not used to doing, but are, is needed. No, definitely. Um, interestingly, today we had just been constructing on a regional level a questionnaire that was to go out and it specifically asks, are you um, comfortable caring for medical patients on the floor with supervision or independently? Are you, are you comfortable caring for ICU patients on the floor uh, or in the ICU, obviously, um, uh, independently or under supervision? So we're starting to poke in those areas to 
to see uh, what the uh, individual uh, surgeon groups, because there's a lot less surgery in our system now, and so we want to uh, keep our our group of physicians still working and contributing, and many of them are because we're taking night clinics in today, and we're um, converting um, face-to-face clinics to virtual and all that stuff that everybody's doing across the nation to deal with this crisis. But just specifically to your point, we're starting to understand at least pre-plan the concepts of potentially repurposing our physician uh, workers. And so I will tell you that in the initial areas in terms of specific to orthopedic surgery and musculoskeletal care, MSK care, we are trying to be as um, helpful to our urgent care colleagues as well as our emergentologists so that they don't have to see beyond what we call a medical screening exam. The patient is just initially checked to make sure there's no major medical problems. And then if it's just an ankle sprain and you've proven that they didn't have a heart attack or they don't have any other underlying issues, especially in this case, COVID issues, COVID-19 issues, we, we uh, are trying to just intercept them and uh, begin care for them uh, initially. Whereas in the past in our system, most people would say, well, did the ER physician see them first? Did the uh, urgentologist see them first? We want to unload them. So that's probably the first stages and redeployment in different areas might be the second stages and then complete repurposing if the situation gets to that we all have to be ready for that to help out where help is needed even in potentially areas where we haven't uh, um, done that sort of medicine in a long time probably since internship yeah and you know we've also i'm speaking you know to our health system uh, uh, in philadelphia we have um in our department kind of gone to a uh, teams, at least. Um, I mean, myself doing orthopedic trauma, I and my partner are still kind of actually working with our own independent resident teams that are not actually crisscrossing. So I'm, I go in on my days and uh, she's on her days with her residents. But the rest of our department is actually split into three different teams now or platoons or whatever, whatever you want to call it, which I think a lot, I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of centers or heard a lot of centers doing this. And you know, kind of like a joints person and a sports person and a hand person and a PA and maybe a non-op physician helping to cover kind of everything because we've ever consolidated clinics now. Stuff like you said, like that biceps tendon rupture. One of my partners actually had to do one of those today um, as well as sort of the non-fracture urgent cases as well as post-ops and, you know, patients who need to come to the clinic. So we're sort of doing this thing where we have you know, a team of physicians coming in and then working from home to sort of self-quarantine, I guess, and then the next team comes on. Um, Are you seeing stuff like that uh, in California as well? Or, I mean, I've heard of it on chat groups and at least talking to people locally. Uh, Are you guys doing things like that? Yes, our, our some of our larger medical centers, because we have medical centers that have four to six orthopedic surgeons in a smaller medical center, and then we have some that have 20 to 30s. Our San Diego team is very large, and so they also had a, um, a significant number of, uh, of orthopedic surgeons who came in after military careers, so they're used to disaster planning and, and emergent uh, sort of um, crash-type planning scenarios, uh, and so they 
they they were some of the first to advocate for this, as well as as you like you say some of my own reading uh, um, outside of this work uh, to say we need to um, protect the teams from one another because if one team gets contaminated, you don't want to contaminate the entire workforce. And then secondly, it also allows for um, and you know I think I wasn't never in the, I was never in the military, but they seem to talk about this a, a kind of a chain of command. You don't want to knock out the entire um, chain of leaders. And in your department, you would say these three to five people are definitely the leaders and these ones are the ones who are the first followers, not, not disparaging the first follower. You need a follower to be a leader, but some people just have the skills innately in them. So you don't want them all on the same team to your point of separating teams. It's both, I think, as you were saying, for cross uh, to protect against cross contamination and also to preserve a leadership structure. So we've even thought about it in so far as that in our bigger teams. What uh, what about office staff? Um, I mean, I know in our area, um, sometimes it's not that easy. You know, the, you have labor unions, um, you have, um, you know, people who, you know, are working, they want to get, the, you know, their hours and, uh, they look around and doesn't look dangerous enough to, you know, miss work and uh, they need a paycheck. I mean, what are you guys doing about office staff and people who rely on coming into work? And uh, when you're consolidating and there's not that much work, are you repurposing office staff? Or, I mean, how is, how, how is your group handling it? And what are some of the maybe success stories you're hearing about how to handle that? Well, per directly in our group, we are seeing some of this where there may be a little bit less workload. So um, we're allowing people to take time off if they want to. And some of them want to, and just because they'd rather be at home. Others uh, would just love to be here. It's the, the kind of the, the, the family beyond the family. And, you know, it is a really dangerous thing, not them, but the idea that once you come here, you fall into old habits. People laugh, they talk real near one another. People want to hug one another in the morning to say hello. And so, um, it's interesting that uh, we, we, we probably need to start considering as the vo volume of positive cases goes up, especially the, the, um, the young shedders, if you will, that ma many of us have all read about. Um, we need to start thinking about how to, to um, protect everybody from everybody else because I think we first want to be be protective of ourselves, of our families, also always be in, involved and invested in the organizational goals and be a good physician and do the right things that we're all uh, trained to do and, and we went into this profession to do. We also don't wanna go home and cross contaminate our families because we were flippant because we fell into um, uh, typical behaviors of, of not realizing that the the potential for um, uh, infection even exists in, in, in environments that we live in every day. Almost, we spend more time with some of our colleagues at work than we do with our families sometimes. So it can be like the most comfortable environment. And when you have comfort, sometimes you let down your guard. So I think we were just talking about that today, um, uh, some of the other leaders and I at the local medical center, and we're thinking about how to protect against that loss of vigilance. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things we talked about uh, today was, you know, everybody's just, you know, you're 
at work, you're doing your normal thing, you're walking around the hospital and you kind of, you know, almost start to forget about what's going on out there. You're not seeing CNN running all day long. You're just doing your work. And uh, we started wearing, you know, uh, surgical masks just to kind of, you know, uh, you're getting in elevators with people, you're working in teams, you're uh, obviously seeing patient after patient uh, if you're walking around the hospital. And um, I think we're just starting to see more people doing that. I know a lot of um, uh, a lot of people have recommended that these small things, um, just preventing, uh, just droplet precautions really um, can really help along with hand hygiene. Um, and also just to remind everybody, you know, who sort of slip into that comfort zone that um, we have to be really careful. Just the last question, just to kind of, um, uh, for the sake of time, wrap things up. Um, what are the, um, what are your concerns, I guess, in, in terms of, you know, lost revenue, lost volume, and how to ramp up when, I mean, right now we're kind of in, um, uh, I should say, you know, kind of hunker down mode and um, doing what we can to stop the spread of disease. But um, eventually we're going to have to try and ramp back up when this is hopefully over. What's going to be the uh, fallout realistically and how are we going to ramp back up? No, this is great. Uh, you know, especially for those of us in orthopedics, although we have urgent and emergent cases, um, uh, you know, the lion's share of our, all of our cases and all of our practice, yours and mine and everybody else in between orthopedically is elective. So we are going to have significant backlogs. So how will we be able to make up those backlogs, keep our patients happy? In private practice, people need to stay happy or else they might go shopping for a different doctor at the out of the back end of this. And that's lost revenue to the individual surgeon and in our environments they could disenroll from our healthcare program and that could be lost revenue and at the same time we're continuing to uh, have a financial outlay for people's work and in some cases before the uh, storm or a surge there may be less work so we're trying to work through what that looks like both to manage backlogs and to manage potential financial shortfall um, I'm really concerned about my my friends in private practice who um, are just having a, a decreases in, in income. My income is a little bit more fixed, but my system is uh, uh, always looks at productivity. And if there's not a lot of productivity for the payment yet, you can understand there's risks involved. And then at the end of this, if there's less people who have jobs and there's uh, uh, the job loss is great, I think all orthopedic surgeons in all environments might see le more people with lost insurance. And, and um, most of us, whether they're ones like mine where I'm in a capitated environment or insurances pay the fee for service uh, uh, um, surgeons um, in many cases too. So it's going to be a problem for a lot of us. And if there's not a lot of a margin or ability to, to beat out this financial downfall for many, I think we're going to see bankruptcy and, and, and uh, um, other real difficult things. So I think to answer your question, we have to start planning for how we will manage backlogs and how we will manage this financial downturns and be able to see the other side through to, you know, um, uh, more, um, more financially stable times. Yeah, I think that's going to be another conversation. It's all uncharted waters and hopefully um, surgeon communities uh, can learn from each other 
to learn the success stories and um, learn some lessons how we can uh, climb back out of this, hopefully when the time comes shortly. Well, I want to thank you again. I've been talking with uh, Dr. Ronald Navarro, uh, MD, who is the Regional Coordinating Chief of Orthopedic Surgery at Southern California Permanente Medical Group. He's also the president of the California Orthopedic Association. We've been talking about COVID-19 ortho's role. A uh, lot to chew on there. Thank you again, Dr. Navarro. Really appreciate you coming on the show again. Thanks for uh, taking the time, and uh, I hope this is informative to our listeners.